We're back. Welcome back to Auntie Hour. I'm Auntie Frond. I'm Auntie Whiskers. What are we talking about, Auntie Frond? Talking about immigration, naturalization, and citizenship. So we're going to get to that, but first we would just like to start uh, by shouting out an auntie of the episode. Our chosen auntie is not just one person, but rather a collection of people. What we are talking about specifically is this really amazing campaign that was put together by Black organizers all over the country, uh, organizations such as uh, Black Lives Matter chapters and the Movement for Black Lives, uh, Southerners on New Ground, Color of Change, and so many others who... Uh, basically organized a fundraising campaign in the weeks leading up to Mother's Day to bail out black mamas who were incarcerated and had been separated from their families. And this has kind of morphed, now that Mother's Day is over, into a more general campaign to end cash bail. What are your thoughts on cash bail, Auntie Verand? I think it's bogus. Definitely the fact that if you can't pay money, you're just incarcerated by default pending trial often for very low level offenses is like some real fuckery um and it also makes me hopeful to know about the people who are doing organizing to fight for a future in which less of this fuckery as you say will hopefully occur what is auntiedom but trying to reduce the amount of fuckery in the world and love each other right you're right Now let's turn to this episode's topic of immigration, naturalization, and citizenship. This topic, I would say, came up pretty naturally as a topic for us because we each have personal ties to it, as well as the current political climate and the ways that these topics are also floating to the top. So we reached out to two really great Asian men that we know and We know that they are two people that have thought a lot about these things because both of them are immigrants. So we invited them to come and share a little bit of their stories and uh, just kind of talk us through how the process of immigration changes the way that they situate themselves. We are joined on this fine occasion by Uncle S, a person that we know who is an immigrant, and also many other things. So, uh, Uncle S, I guess we'd just like to start out by having you say a little bit about yourself and the role that immigration or migration in general have played in your life. So, my family moved to the United States seven years ago, and I officially became a citizen last year in 2016. Um, My parents also became naturalized citizen, even though for my dad it took him a little longer. He just became season actually this month. Is there a reason that you and your family decided to naturalize at the time you did? Um, so in my family, my sister and my mom went through the process first. Just because at the time they were in the state and I was in London when I was in my study abroad year. To me personally, it was important just in the idea of like having the security to leave the country and know that I can come back. The idea of not having like a U.S. passport, it does limit my experience abroad a lot. Like I couldn't really leave London to go anywhere in Europe because I, I had to ask for visa for every single country that I want to go to. So when I have the opportunity to come back here and like apply for citizenship, I, I jump on it right away. I just want to make sure I don't limit myself any future opportunity for not having that passport. By becoming a U.S. citizen, I kind of lost my citizenship to Vietnam. Because um, when I went through the whole naturalization process, 
it also at the same time that I went through my medical transition process. So in the process of me medically transitioning to be a man, I encountered many um, paperwork issues. And what that included, I cannot go back to change my passport in Vietnam to my gender right now. So, so by me earning my citizenship in the U.S. and by me making, like getting a U.S. passport with like my new, my, my male gender, I really cannot go that, use that to go back and claim my, my Vietnamese citizenship anymore. And it was ironic because with the whole election result happened and everybody talking about this idea of like leaving the country, like going to Canada or like finding another like ideal place to go to. And I remember seeing an article pop up on my new feed uh, recommending Vietnam is one of those places. And it was like, huh, I just lost the citizenship to go back to my homeland. And that's like one of the places that people here want to get to right now to get away from this whole shit they call America. And did you know, um, before you began the process of applying for American citizenship and getting that new passport, were you aware that when, when uh, you got that because of the different ways those documents identified your gender, that you wouldn't be able to claim the Vietnamese one? I mean, I constantly thought about it. And then, like, I've been, I've been cl- uh, following closely with the politics in Vietnam. So in recent years, there's been a lot of, um, I get like LGBT rights movement in Vietnam. And there's been a lot of demand from the activist community, like demand for rights for the transgender community. And then like being able to change their paperwork legally is one of the things that people have been fighting for. But as of now, it's still not a thing. So I cannot really go back and change that in my business paperwork. Therefore, I cannot really do anything about it at this moment. Being a immigrant, being a permanent resident, being trans, that my life experience, I live with that every day. So I think about it every day. And hopefully in the future, the Vietnam government would open a way for me to go back and claim that citizenship. Have you been back to Vietnam? So I actually went back um, for a short visit last December. And I actually had to apply for visa. So I actually still have my Vietnamese passport with me. And it doesn't expire until 2018. But I just didn't want to risk using it. Because I still have my my um, my old gender on it. And I just didn't want to go through the whole process of subjecting myself to future or potential humiliations or whatever. So I just like rather pay for visa and apply for all of that stuff. And it feel weird to go back to my country and be treated as a, f- a foreigner, but I just have to do it for now. What was it? What were some of the ways that you perceived that you were being treated like a foreigner? Like when you go through the whole uh, security thing, the the border thing. So the, the the route for people with Vietnamese passport is different from the ones with like like foreign passport, mm. for example. So mm. that in a way they already treat you differently. And when you got to Vietnam itself. With your American citizenship this time around, did it feel different for you to be there? No, I mean, I don't really try to make myself different. <laughs> Just the, uh, the whole idea that the more you make myself more like a tourist, um, the more expensive thing gets. <laughs> so that's a simple idea. So like, nah, I wasn't going to play with that. Some real productive wisdom <laughs> from Uncle S here. Do you identify as American? Has there been a shift in the way that you, you know, like relate to the U.S.? Um pre- and post-citizenship slash naturalization process? So when I went um, to the state, I started high school here. I think that the kind of discrimination that I was met, I, 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 I had to face with, with was not coming from like other racial 
communities, but more so from the Vietnamese American or the Vietnamese uh, kids who immigrate much earlier than me. So, like, I had to deal with a lot of those, like, <laughs> internalized racism within the a- Asian American group in my high school. So I, I never felt like, I never, f- I never felt like I'm part of the group. I never felt like I'm part of that community. I never, I never considered myself American. Just because it's already, it's always made clear to me how different I am to them. But then going to top to start my whole um, exploration of my racial identity. I was trying to make sense of, of my presence here. Like, why did I come here? I was trying to take all these classes in like Asian American study and go through all this like history, trying to make sense of my why I'm here, why I had to subject myself to so much of this like humiliations and and whatever for being like a first gen, for being um, a first gen immigrant, for having these accents, and whether or not it's a privilege or it's a curse for me to be here. So like by me learning about all that and coming to terms with that, I I I identify myself. I claim myself the Asian American mm. identity. So yes, I do identify as American, not as a white American, but as Asian American. So I think you talked a little bit about how people in Vietnam are, are trying to uh, mobilize to make document regulations, especially around stuff like gender, um, more accessible. And it's really cool that you like are aware of those kinds of movements in the place that you have come from. And so I guess I'm just wondering how you situate yourself in relation to the movements going on in Vietnam and also going on here in the States. I mean, it's, it's definitely hard when I cannot, I cannot be there physically. I've been connecting with different activists just to exchange information. They would ask me about like a lot of stuff that I, I had the privilege to have the resources here. Just simple thing like, how do I get medication? Like what did uh, my doctor and I talk about when we have our annual check-in, that kind of stuff. So in that way, I feel like I can still keep a relationship with them. I mean, and definitely, I've, I've been really wanting to going back to live in Vietnam, either Vietnam or Southeast Asia. I feel like there's a lot happening there right now that I really want to get involved with and be a part of. But also, I think it's very interesting because a lot of these movement, a lot of the activists were funded and trained by a lot of these nonprofit and NGO that got funding from places like the U.S., or Europe, who trying to show Vietnam that they they don't treat human rights as they should. You know the whole neoliberalism that like we're trying to free you, we're trying to give you whatever. Oh yes, that whole thing. Mm-hmm. So like even though I feel like it's a good thing that like you get the resources from all these foreign organizations, whatever, to like um, lead the movement, train train the activists, and just like create more possibility for the people there. It's also difficult to think about like, how they've been using this against just Vietnam in general. I think I don't know too, too much about what you're doing, but um, I think it has to do with college access for first-gen students. Um, is that right? Yes. So I work for a scholarship um, organizations and nonprofit organizations. So I recruit students and then I basically <laughs> act as an admission person, interview them, all that kind of stuff. And then I selected uh, 20 different students to give them full tuition scholarship to a top tier university. Well, since you are uh, somewhat of an expert on the college process, especially for marginalized students, 
But I was just wondering if you could talk about like what kinds of challenges persist or are not really being addressed for undocumented students. Hmm, you just hit the right spot. <laughs> this is something I've been been so 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 mad so mad. We annually accept more than twelve hundred applications, and then we select only seventy student out of that to give them scholarship. And I remember I have two undocumented student who were my um, candidate this year that I advocate for really hard. And it came down to the point that they can only afford to give one scholarship to one undocumented student. Also, they also cite that currently on their college campus, there is not a social group to support the student. There's not a first-gen group. There's not an undocumented student group. And therefore, they're not confident that there would be enough social support for the student. So I was so, so upset about that fact. Because I remember like how upset kids can feel when you get rejection from college that, that you dream to go to. And now it came down to the realization that it's not because you're not worthy. It's not because you're not enough. It's not because you don't have a great potential to be successful there. It's just because they don't have enough resource for you. Well, Glass, thanks so much for sharing all of these things with us. We wanted to end... Um by A, asking if you had any stray thoughts that you wanted to share. It's probably like a cliche thing to say right now in this moment of like despair. I mean, that's how I feel all the time, but it's mm-hmm. so easy to be paralyzed by our fear in this current moment with like so many things happening right now. I feel like if, but like, if I keep, um, if I, if I held myself back from like doing the thing that I want to do, like if I didn't like apply for the citizenship or go through my whole transition or apply for all of this paperwork change because of my fear of whatever, I wouldn't be where I am today more contained with what I had yesterday and more more safe and more secure in that sense. Uncle S has a really big heart, Auntie Frond. Also, I think a very courageous mm. heart. Thank you for having me here today. It's been a fun time chatting with y'all. Well, that interview with Uncle S really reaffirmed all the reasons that, well, a lot of the reasons that I think he's really cool and great, such as his thoughtfulness, his compassion, um, his courageousness, and many other positive qualities. I think that I'm really excited to see what the future holds for him. Agree. A good person to have on your side. Next up, we talked to our friend Rebby, who was in the process of applying for his citizenship. Um, He... Is a little bit different from Uncle S, notably in that he has not received his citizenship yet and also um, will be the first person in his family to naturalize and have a U.S. citizenship. I am um, thrilled to be here. Oh my God, uh, thank, thank you guys. <laughs> thank you guys for having me. Um, and yeah, I mean, a little bit of background. I mean, obviously, we, we've been friends for a long time. So you guys know, like a good chunk of my story. But um, I was born and raised in London slash Milton Keynes in the UK. And then when I was about 13, actually, yeah, April 21st, 2006. Why am I pretending that I don't know the date? Um, I moved to the United States of America. God bless. Yeah, this great a- land. <laughs> <laughs> Um, as a result of my dad's job, he kind of, he kind of was, um, you know, asked to move here and 
weighed up the options with my mom. I would I would say that my brother and I had a little bit of a say, but probably not really. Um, I come from like a family of movers and shakers. Um, one like a, we've been all over the place. So my dad was born in Uganda, and he left in 1972. And Idi Amin drove most most of the South Asian population from the country. And when I say most, I mean all. Um, and he moved to London because. Uh, he had a British passport because Uganda used to be a, a British colony. Um, and so at the time of independence, people were given a choice. Do you want to take a Ugandan pas- passport or do you want to take a British passport? And uh, my my great-grandfather had a feeling that it would be a smart idea to keep the British one. Um, so he did. And then my mom was born in Madagascar. She went to France when she was 10. Um, and so she was there until the age of 23, at which point she moved to England, where she met my dad. Um, so yeah, that's kind of our background. I don't think it's been a very standard trajectory for me. Because we were coming over through my dad's job, and we were basically sponsored by my dad's company. And I don't think we, we really had to worry about being accepted for that or not, which is a very fortunate position to be in. And something I, I think I recognize. And the only reason I didn't apply for citizenship sooner was because it was a lot of paperwork and I just figured I would do it at some point and I just kind of got my act together recently and did started the process. What do you think prompted your decision to begin the naturalization process right now? Yeah, um, so I think what it was is it kind of a, an assessment of where I saw myself in the future. And I think when I first moved here, I never, I think, I didn't consider the USA home until about maybe two years in the sophomore year of high school. Um, that was one thing. And I think I, I, I started to see my future here and not in England, much to the disdain of my parents. And it's still kind of a point of contention. So, I mean, really from a professional perspective and a legal perspective, I, I need a right to work and reside in the country. And a green card is valid for 10 years. And I think you can renew it. But this is kind of where I see myself settling down. I think that was the aspect. And I think it, this is like where I started calling home for better or for worse. And I think this is kind of where I became who I am today. So I felt a little tied to that too. Um, how does your hopefully upcoming U.S. citizenship affect your relationship to the U.K., but also the other countries that you have ties to, for example, France and Madagascar? Um, in India and Uganda? I think kind of rephrasing your question a little bit, and it's just more because this is kind of how I felt about it, it, I think it changes my relationship with the U.S. more than anything else. Because, mm. um, like, for example, I haven't been able to vote in elections. I haven't been able to... Like, you can be politically active, obviously, and you can be in activism, but I, I think there's almost a sense of this is now kind of mine. This is like now my responsibility as well. Like it's a shared responsibility. I feel like, you know, I think I've had family ask me, like, why are you doing this? Especially when the political uh, climate in the U.S. is the way it is. And I think it's like, I see it as a chance to work from within rather than just run away or like kind of detach at a time of need. I've also reached a point and I think this is an important thing to note, is that the South Asian diaspora within the United Kingdom, I think, from my experience, is very different from the one I've experienced in the United States. Mm. Um, and I think 
I feel more more involved in the South Asian diaspora in the United States. I think I understand the the UK one like pretty well, but I feel like this being part of the diaspora here is more of my identity these days. Mm. Well, to kind of uh, backtrack a bit to when you mentioned that uh, claiming, I suppose, citizenship is in a way claiming a lot of the work that has to be done in this country as your work. I just kind of wanted to ask uh, how election night back in November went or felt for you? Um, it was weird because I think I felt very upset and and I had people kind of asking me like why do you feel upset if you're not a citizen here and I think that was the, the point where I was like I feel I feel like a citizen um, but I feel invested to such an extent that this is you know important to me and I kind of wasn't able to have my voice heard with the brexit i think i woke up that day i was with my cousin who still lives in, in the uk we were both in madagascar at the time and like i felt super demoralized too because there were like a group there were groups of like south asians and stuff who like voted to leave and it just kind of felt like people had lost their identity as immigrants mm-hmm. i had um, some family friends tell me that they had some friends who voted to leave because they were like, we don't want these immigrants taking our jobs. And I'm just like sitting there thinking, well, are, like what? Like you immigrated like less than a generation ago. Ugh. So yeah, it feels like a responsibility, but it was like when election had happened here, it's like, this is like, I have to go out there and I have to have my voice heard and I have to do things. Where in the UK, it was like, I felt a lot more detached from the situation. And even though like my heart felt heavy, it was more out of just like, spectator's position more so. You've mentioned that the process of getting citizenship involves fingerprinting, and next you have your interview, correct? Yeah. So this is just something I was wondering. Do you have to study for the civics questions? Yeah, there's like there's like a bank of 100 questions, and they'll ask you. I, I don't know how, how many, but I was told like three or four or something. It's very short, apparently. Is it like, who's on the $10 bill? No, I think one I've heard is like, who who is your current um, representative in the House of Representatives? And I actually wouldn't know that. That's something I would have to look up. I'll I'll give you guys one. Yeah. Uh, let's see if you can. What is what is the law of the land? What do you mean? I'm asking you. That's just what the question is. I I keep telling people that I got a five on AP U.S. History. I should just be allowed to like use that as a waiver. <laughs> yeah, just bring in the College Board like transcript. I I, I wish right. Honestly. Like, I get a zero for that question. I have no idea how to approach that. Frond, what about you? Is law of the land that thing where I'm like, how about this? <laughs> law of the land. I got it. It's not law as complicated land, as you're making it Law of the land is that thing that makes it so that people can make citizens arrests. Wait, no, no I've got it. Is the answer the Constitution? Yeah. Yes! <laughs> Well, I mean, on the one hand, like, it's funny that that question is so vague and you can overthink it. But on the other hand, that's, like, fucked up that they would ask (laughs) stuff like that. (laughs) I know. How are people supposed to know that? Dang, what the heck? And so is there other stuff alongside? Like, do you have to learn the Pledge of Allegiance? Like, do you have to be able to recite it at your interview? Um, No, I think they just give you a readout. Mm. Hmm. What kind of emotions do you speculate are going to be going through your head when they're reading out the pledge to you and you're really making the transformation. Uh, probably like wondering what, what meal I'm going to have next. How do your parents feel about this? You said you mentioned that they're not changing their citizenship probably, but this means that you'll hold different citizenship from them. Yeah. Um, and 
you'll maybe be the first person in your family to have U.S. citizenship. Yeah, I will be. I think on one hand, my parents like knew this was coming, and mm-hmm. they 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 kind of supported me through the process, whatever. Um, so I asked my I borrowed the money from my mom and then paid her back. I think the more my dad thinks about it, he, he gets a little more up in arms each time we talk about it because he feels like he moved here, and him moving here is now gonna eventually break his family apart. Mm. Wow. I'm not even like speculating. I know that's how he feels. He's like, I didn't move. If I'd, if I'd known that this was going to leave us on different continents, I wouldn't have done it. Mm. Wow. But Diaspora, man. Yeah. Really gets yeah. you. And I, I think there's actually one more thing I wanted to say, which is relevant. I think so. My brother is very adamantly saying he doesn't want to apply for citizenship because he does it. He feels like England is his home. And I don't know, I, I, it's not my job to say whether he's misguided or not. I have no real opinion. He can feel whichever way he wants. But I think it's important to note that. I just thought it was a key bit of info. Thanks so much for sharing all your thoughts with us. No worries. And thank you guys for doing this. Wow. I mean, you and I have known Ravi for a while, but I think it's actually really cool to hear him kind of lay out his immigration narrative in such a uh, a concise and complete way. And these are a lot of conversations that I don't know that I would have ever had with him if not for this podcast. So thanks, Auntie Hour. Thanks, listeners. Thanks, Ravi. I do think it's really cool to think about how um, our identities have, you know, kind of all changed over the past years. Um and really been shaped by our understandings of our own situation with relationship to diaspora and to our homelands in different ways. Um, and I think Ravi shed a lot of light on that in some really eloquent ways, and I'm really glad that he did so. Anyway, thank you so much for listening to us and joining us after this long hiatus. Um, hopefully next episode will not be so far away. Do not make these promises. Yeah, no promises, just an earnest hope. Thank you to Jahan Madani for our lovely art. Thanks to Lost Tunnel Boys for the use of our theme song, Bamboo Lit. Thank you to our very patient producers, Dylan Portalance, Emma Arnestupid, and Martha Shannon. Is it worth still trying to put in the f- like uh, five seconds of my dad butchering the French language? Because immigration is the closest we're ever going to have it for, for an excuse to do that. C'est un stylo. C'est un, un table. Est-ce que c'est un homme? You know, what the hell does that mean? Voici encore tout pontu. Pontu. Il y a what? Manteau sur la table. And I put the cake on the table. Right? Gato is cake. Gato, yeah, my gato, manto, God only knows, you know.